Well, if you're not awake, that video sure should help you, okay? So uh, that's kind of how I feel, so that's good, that's good. I've been doing a little assistant baseball coaching this spring, and um, I was impressed with our first parent meeting because everybody showed up except for one parent, so that was good participation. But, um, but I'm a little bit concerned at how long that the head coach is going to last. I mean, I was really excited when he said we were going to have fun. And not only that we were going to have fun, we were going to improve at this game and maybe even win a few games. So I'm like, nice, I like his attitude, like that. But, but then he said he expected everybody to be at our practices, which, were, or which are like once a week for about an hour, And he said, so practice, when we come to practice, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to greet each other, and then we're going to sing, take me out to the ball game. And then, then we're going to have a teammate talk to us about how he or or she discovered the joy of baseball. And then after that testimony, then we were going to have one of the coaches teach an important aspect of the life of baseball for about, you know, 15 minutes or so. And then we were going to use the last 20 or 30 minutes to do situational baseball, you know, where to stand, where to throw, where, where someone's going to go. And so that was going to be our practices. And, and so he expected everybody to be there for our once a week practice for about an hour. And our kids, like they're not quite picking up the practicing like we should. We're struggling a little bit. Um, you know, we've lost our first two games. And so I'm not super worried. I'm, I'm sure we'll be fine. Can you imagine if you went out for an athletic endeavor that was said to be competitive and you were told, hey, we're glad you're here. You know, we are, we are really excited that, that we're in this endeavor, whatever it is, and we're going to practice once a week. I would, I would just, I guess, propose to you that that is not enough practice. That is not enough effort. And so this, um, this guy named Malcolm Gladwell, who's an author and a researcher, he wrote this book called Outliers. And in Outliers, he's studying success, and he, he popularizes the principle of the 10,000 hours of talent principle. And, and basically, it goes like this. It says that people who are in the top of their field generally have invested 10,000 hours of practice into said field. Okay, just think about that for a minute. Because I think this principle can be seen throughout, throughout a lot of areas of life. For example, um, Bill Gates, before he was, by the time he was 20 or 21, he had spent 10,000 hours computer programming and coding. Based on his high school experience and his college experience, he was set. That was an essential part of him becoming an expert in the field of computers. And I'm fairly confident that Michael Phelps has dedicated at least 10,000 hours of practice before he went on to win a record eight gold medals in the 2008 Olympics. Now, you might not like these people. They might not be at the top of your list. But I would say that there are two examples here of people who've invested 10,000 hours into a said practice area and are pretty darn talented at it. Now, imagine you decide to spend 10,000 hours learning Chinese. Do you think you'd be able to speak fluent Chinese? I, I, I don't know if I would. But, 
But I think we can assume that if we spent 10,000 hours at anything, we would see incredible improvement. Now, depending on how we practiced, if we practiced deliberately and intentionally, I think we could see incredible improvement in our life. Would you agree? So, why are we so reluctant to transfer this principle to our faith life? I mean, the statistics out there now say that Jesus people, Jesus believing people, like people who believe and follow Jesus, really live no differently than people who don't follow Jesus in, in most aspects of life. Now, could it be that we're so worried about earning our faith that we have lost the idea that we have to put effort into our faith? So today we're going to talk a little bit about effort because I think that if we invested 10,000 hours into the life, love, and way of Jesus, that we would not only see our lives transformed, but we would see the lives of those around us transformed. And I am here to say it is not about earning a relationship with God. Grace and earning are completely opposite of each other. They are opposed to each other, but grace and effort, those are not opposed to each other. And I think we'll see as we look in the scriptures today that this is true. So, as much as I like Outlasters and the idea of, a, a, of Outliers, excuse me, this book by Malcolm Gladwell, I am much more interested in being an Outlaster. Those who live beyond themselves, those who outlast beyond themselves, those who contribute to the kingdom of God in ways that will impact eternity, those who pass on their faith in ways that will impact future generations of people, not just kids, but k- friends, coworkers, classmates, all along. So, As we look at today and we look at the scriptures, we started this Outlaster series asking what happens or what will happen when you pass on. And that we talked about that last week. And this week, we're talking about what kind of faith you will pass on. So if you have a scriptures or a device with a Bible, why don't you turn to 1 Timothy 4. Because I think Paul was an Outlaster himself. And he writes to the church in Ephesus and to Timothy, one of the people that he mentored in the faith, about how these people should conduct themselves in in God's house, in his church, and in the greater world of life. And I think in in these 10 verses, he talks about the kind of faith that's worth passing on. 1 Timothy 4 says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times, some will abandon their faith and follow the deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come from hypocritical liars whose consciousness have been seared as with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and order them to abstain from certain foods, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and those who know the truth. For everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving, because it is consecrated by the word of God and in prayer. So if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teaching that you have followed. So have nothing to do with, have nothing to do with godless myths and old wives' tra- tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly. 
For physical training has some value, but godliness has a value of all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And that is why that we labor in vain. Excuse me. That is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, and especially of those who believe. So God, would you give us insight and be with us as we look at what kind of faith we can pass on? See, as I think about this story here, and as I've looked at the, not just the first letter of Timothy, but the second te- letter of Timothy, these letters that are in the latter part of the Bible are, are dealing with situations in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus has left the earth, he's ascended, he has had specific revelation to specific people, and his spirit has been unleashed over all people. And so these people believe that because they have God's spirit, and because... Um, God told them to be the church. They're trying to be the church. Crazy, huh? And that that ministers aren't these paid professionals, but ministers are people who have the Spirit of God who feel called to shepherd and lead people, and so they're doing it, but they have some messed up situations in their areas. And so Timothy was put in this place called Ephesus, and Ephesus was a crazy, crazy place. Um, They, the people of Ephesus worshipped one of the Greek gods, Artemis, and one time for two hours, they shouted, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, because they were so upset that some of these people started believing in Jesus, and instead of making metal gods and idols to, this, to the goddess Artemis, they would actually throw away their magic books, throw away their um, how-to-build sculptures of Artemis books, valued at hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so there's almost a riot that happens in Ephesus. Anyway, crazy place. So... Along comes this these group of people in chapter 4 who believe that the kind of faith that you should pass on or they, that, that how your lifestyle looks is more important than the kind of faith you pass on. And so it's called aestheticism. It, it means that it's this idea that, that in order to be spiritually mature, you have to abstain from certain physical things. And so, specifically, these people were talking about, oh, you can't get married, and you can't eat certain foods. If you do that, then, then you're not really, really spiritually mature. You're not really going to have the kind of faith that you pra- pass on. And that's what these people were practicing. Now, I think we know this, but there might be specific reasons why you don't eat certain foods. Maybe they're dietary Maybe you have allergies. Maybe you just don't like the high fat content. But if your friend is is eating beer or bacon, can I just say, it's okay. There's not a spiritual reason that you can't do that. Just saying, if we don't have bacon lovers, it's, you can't tell someone that there's a spiritual reason that you can't have that. And now, if you're Jewish, you're like, whoa, wait a second. We cannot eat bacon. (laughs) And so this was causing some major, major division. So I imagine that Timothy or some other people that believed that they had the Holy Spirit, that they could lead, they get together and they're like, writing to Paul, hey, you put us here, you planted us here, you said that we, we had the Spirit and we could figure this out, but we don't know what to do with these people that are practicing this aestheticism. So how can we pass on a faith that really matters and that really works? And so indirectly or directly, I think they asked Paul, what should we do? And I believe that Paul 
essentially says in these 10 verses that you can only pass on the kind of faith you practice. You can only pass on the kind of faith you practice. These people were practicing a lifestyle that was about certain physical things. He says, no, you want to pass on a different kind of faith. And there are four aspects that I see in Paul's little note here about the kind of faith that is worth passing on. So as we look at these four things, I'd like you to just think about, is this a part of my faith life? Is this a part of my life? And if it's not, why not? Not to make you feel guilty, but just as a kind of check if you have this faith in Christ. And if you don't, then think about, if I encountered someone that had this kind of a faith, what would be my response to them? So, the first one I see is a personal faith. A personal faith. He says everything, every, in verse 4, everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. There's a personal engagement to a kind of faith that somebody receives something with thanksgiving, that it's not this out here faith thing, that it's something that is impacting their daily life. Have you ever been around someone that's just so thankful and so grateful that they have everything, everything that they take in, they take in with gratitude? Maybe you remember the old movie, What About Bob? You know, my dad's here and he hates the movie. And I just love the movie because Bob is like so expressive in, in neurotic, but so expressive in how he takes in everything. And so he starts eating and he's like, mmm, this is, oh, this is so wonderful when he gets invited into his psychiatrist's home with his wife's cooking. He just gets so, so fascinated. But that's the first image that comes to my mind of someone who has this attitude of gratitude that my first response in all situations will be to offer thanks rather than critique. Now, think about people that you've been around when that's their first response. Critique is their first response. You go to this great event, maybe it's a fundraising gala, and all of a sudden the person you're with is like, oh, do you see, they could have done that better if only they would have missed, oh, you know, if they could have... It just brings everything down a notch. And it's hard to personally engage when critique is your first response. So I think this aspect of the kind of faith that we can pass on is a personal faith. It's one where we engage and it's one where we practice thankfulness. And he says, everything can be received because everything that God created is good if it's received with thanksgiving. So thanksgiving is the only requirement to engaging in these things that God created. Now, there's some things that God didn't create. I don't think he created poison. I don't think he created pornography. I don't think he created some of those things. So those aren't going to be made good just by saying, oh, I'm thankful for it. But he's inviting us to engage our faith. So if you are like, ooh, gosh, I really, I really need this kind of faith piece in my life, this personal faith. Then I would say you develop an attitude of worship and prayer, which is acknowledging and asking. You're acknowledging God's goodness and you're asking for his power in your life. And a great verse to do this is Psalm 118, 24. If you don't know this verse, I think we're going to have it on the screen. Psalm 118, 24 says, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Man, Practice that verse, memorize that verse, wake up in the morning and say, 
God, this is your day. I'm going to have joy in it. I'm acknowledging you that you made it, that it's a gift. And today, I am going to choose joy in this day. I'm going to have an attitude of gratitude and thankfulness. And this verse will be one that is so, so helpful because it's easy to do on a day like today when it looks kind of sunny outside and it deceives you into wearing short sleeves when you have to put a jacket on. But like yesterday, with my winter coat on, that was a little harder to choose joy in. But again, we might have to start this desire that we have to be thankful. We might have to start it as duty. I will just choose joy in this moment. But we can develop a kind of personal faith that is one that is worth passing on. Second thing I think that Paul says is we can develop a pleasing faith. This is the kind of faith that's worth practicing and passing on, a pleasing faith. I get this from verses 6 and 7 where he says, if you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you will be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths and of the good teaching you have followed and have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. See, this is the kind of idea of uh, focused and obedient faith. But I didn't use the words obedient faith because sometimes we just see that as drudgery. We see that as, I have to do this. Someone's making me do this. But a pleasing faith is one that says, I desire to do this. And, and Paul, later, when he, talks, when he writes to Timothy the second time, he talks about this aspect of enduring like a good soldier of Jesus Christ in 2 Timothy 2, 3. Join me in suffering or enduring like a good soldier of Jesus because no one goes into serving as a soldier who gets tangled up in civilian affairs. Rather, he tries to please his commanding officer. This, this type of aspect of a pleasing faith is one who sees the commanding officer, the master, sees Jesus, who's not only engaging in a personal faith with God, thanking God for each moment, but is also seeing, you know, Jesus did walk a certain way. He did live a certain way, and I desire to live that way as well. And so I will think about what Jesus would do, even though it's cheesy. What would Jesus do? WWJD. Even though that acronym might be a little overused, I will actually think about that in a desire to please Jesus, in a desire to walk with Jesus. And, and you think about what we experience on a day-to-day, um, in our day-to-day lives. The spiritual fast food, if you will, that we're offered. I think it's easy to get hungry when we're, con- when we're consistently given spiritual fast food. And, and the word says, Timothy, you are nourished on the faith. You are nourished on good teachings. You know what good food is. You know what good spiritual food is. So be very careful. In fact, have nothing to do with the things that are myths, that are what I would call spiritual fast food, because it's easy to get hungry. But he also says it's easy to get dirty when you spend time with broken people that are far from God. And he's not saying that that's bad. He's just saying that's reality. So this pleasing faith idea is the idea that, yes, we can go be in the world, but then we can go be with Jesus and alone and with others to be nourished, to be cleansed, to be renewed, to remember who we are seeking to please. And that's the kind of faith 
that I think is worth passing on. It's this idea of being devoted to that commanding officer, this person of Jesus. And, and being devoted is this idea of being involved, being focused on, being continued to be in. He says it later in verse 15. He says, be diligent or be devoted in these matters. Gives your, give yourself wholly to them because people will see your progress. And if you've been with someone who's been devoted to anything, it's contagious, isn't it? I just saw uh, Mike over here, and Mike's got this Vikings hat on, and Mike has a son named Jamie. And uh, it wasn't too long before Jamie had a little onesie of a Vikings, Vikings onesie. Because when you're devoted to something, and it's not bad, I'm a div- I'm, I mean, I, I sometimes bleed purple. When you're devoted to something, you can't help but share it. You can't help but think about it. That's what it means to have a pleasing faith. That's the kind of faith that Paul is saying is worth practicing and worth passing on. The third one is, oh, sorry, if you're like, I don't have a pleasing faith, that's too hard for me. And I think God invites us to listen and look. And Psalm 139, 23 and 24 has been an absolutely fantastic verse in my life to practice this. I was probably taught this verse 15 years ago. And it says in my Bible, a verse to change your life. And if you've never read this verse, it says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the life of everlasting. This is giving God permission, the Spirit of God permission, to look at your life and say, is anything not pleasing to you? Because I just desire you. I want to love you, God. But I know that I face things and I know I think about things that, that don't glorify you. And God doesn't sit there with a stick and a ruler and, and take grades on us. This isn't about performance. This isn't about earning. It's about effort. And we're showing God that we care. We're showing God that we please him when we invite him to look at our life. And he will transform. That's a pleasing faith. It's, it's listening and looking. The third way, the third kind aspect of this faith that's worth passing on that we can practice is a persistent faith. He says in verse 8, in seven, the end of 7 and verse 8, train yourself to be godly. For physical training has some value, but godliness has a value for all things, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. This idea of training yourself to be godly is the word exercise. It's in the Greek, it's gymnasio. It's the gymnasium word. It's, it's this intense, um, strict discipline and training. And so what Paul is doing is he's comparing... For Ephesus, which would be across this little sea from Greece, he's comparing the Greek Olympic Games and the training that's required to go into that as the believer's pursuit of godliness. So Paul's just setting up this parallel, and he says it really clearly in Corinthians when he says in, verse, in chapter 9, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. No one or everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. So therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I don't like 
I don't fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike blows to my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. What Paul is trying to get at in this idea of a persistent faith is one that does strive, does exert effort. It's one that says, I don't just go everywhere and do everything because the the urgent things of life are always crashing down on us. But the important things of life are the things that we miss if we don't have a persistence to them, if we don't put effort into them, if we don't schedule them. And this idea of beating my body, what he's saying is, I want to have control over my mind and my body and my spirit. Now, not a control that I keep for myself, but a control that I can offer to God. Because again, there are always urgent things that come down on us, and we have to continue to remind ourselves of what's important. And so he's saying, I'm purposeful. I'm devoted. I have gone into this strict training to have some muscle memory to know what to do, to know the reflexes of my mind and of my body. When is the last time you heard an Olympian who, who is wearing their gold medal on the news say, you know, how did you do it? I just followed my heart. You know, and, and that got me to where I am today. No, there's a lot of strict discipline. Effort, not earning. So if you're like, ooh, this one is I, I'm really feeling like I don't have that kind of faith in my life, that kind of persistence in my life. Then I would say, get a plan and a partner. Get a plan because, again, the urgent things of life are always going to crowd out the important, so you've got to schedule it. You've got to say, I want to do this. I desire to do this. If you're married, I would encourage you to date your spouse. I'm just saying. Hey, you did it when you were dating someone. You dated them. So when you married them, then you continue to date them. And when you schedule it, it helps improve the relationship. Get a plan. Do you know, uh, I was just with someone who is working with uh, Covenant Church and Biblica to produce this Covenant Community Bible Experience. We'll be talking about it later in the year. But Biblica said that they are losing 700 Bible readers every day around the world. 700 Bible readers every day. People are not reading the Bible. I, I would say, I wonder if people are reading. I mean, when was the last time you read a nonfiction book? Not, I mean, not just fiction, but nonfiction. There's a few of you out there that might be, but I'm guessing if you do, you plan it. So there are lots of ways that you can plan to read the Bible, but the Bible is the truest picture. Well, Jesus is the truest picture of the revelation of God, but we find his story in the Bible. That's why I would encourage you to have a plan to read the Bible and not just alone, but also have a partner because God is amazing and gracious. And remember, grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. He's not going to nag you, but a partner will. So have a positive partner, have a safe partner, have an encouraging partner, but have someone who's going to go, hey, what's God's word been saying to you? And what are you doing about it? 
I mean, I shared a story um, about uh, how to develop an accountability partner, how to have accountability questions. There's 10 of them. And I shared this 14 years ago. I got a message two weeks ago from someone who heard that message and said, two weeks after you shared that, I started meeting with someone. We continue to meet every week to this day. We've been through a divorce, through painful kid choices, through life transitions, job loss, and I cannot imagine where I'd be in my faith if I didn't have that partner. Thank you for listening to God in that. Have a plan and a partner if you want to develop a persistent faith. Finally, the fourth one that I see in this kind of faith that's worth passing on, this faith worth practicing, is a purposeful faith. It's a purposeful faith. I see it in verse 10, where he says, Paul says, that is why we labor and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially to those who believe. That's why we put our hope in all people. I kind of wonder if Paul takes a pause as he writes this letter in verse 10 before he goes to verse 11. I don't know that. I just kind of am picturing it and wondering if he's like, that's why we labor and start because we put our hope in the living God. And he remembers the chains that he's been in for the gospel of Jesus. And he remembers the lashes and the whip, whippings that he got. And he remembers getting kicked out of towns because he's telling people about the living God who is the Savior of all people, who came as the person of Jesus, who taught people who God really is, who gave his life and rose from the dead. I wonder if he just pauses and says, that's why we do this. See, a purposeful faith is one that remembers what it's all about. A purposeful faith is something we practice because it's the only kind of faith that we can pass on, a one we practice. But also a purposeful faith because of the object and affection of our faith. Again, we don't do these things as disciplines and efforts unto themselves. We do them because we have a God who's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus who loves us and pursues us with such intensity and such love. And all we need to do is respond. And sometimes responding takes some effort. And so Paul says it's not easy, but it's worth it. That's why we labor and strive. In one part of his scripture, he talks about, in the second letter to Timothy, he talks about an athlete and a farmer and a soldier. And he says, Timothy, think about these things. This is about what it means to be in our faith. Because at the very end of his letter to Timothy, he says, We looked at it last week. He says, I fought the fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. And there's in store for me this crown of righteousness, not just for me, but anyone who longs for his appearing. Think about that. I long for his appearing because I know I can't do it in my own strength. I know I can't earn it, but I know that he will come back. And I know that this crown will await me. And so I'm thankful for that. I have joy in that. That is part of this this faith that I am practicing and that I'm passing on to you. But not only that, I I have kept the faith. I have run the race. I have, I have, I have fought like a soldier. I have this focused faith, this pleasing faith that desires to be in line with God. I have finished the race. I have this athletic picture 
It's persistent faith that I practice with discipline. Timothy, I long for you to have this. And I would say that Paul and the Spirit of Jesus says to each one of us, these are the things that I long for each of you to have because it's the only kind of faith that you can pass on is the one you practice. And so practice this pleasing faith. Practice this persistent faith. Practice this thankful faith, this, this faith that engages with God. And practice this purposeful faith, the one that keeps the faith. Like a farmer who plants their crops, weeds the soil, and longs for the harvest, that we long for this thing that we know we can't produce on our own. And so that's why I think he says that the living God, who's the Savior of all people, especially for those who believe. The living God who has offered his salvation for everyone, especially for those who believe, especially for the people who say, yes, yes, thank you, God. I receive your word. I'm putting forth effort not to earn something, but to pursue you like you've pursued me. I'm putting forth this effort because I know the only kind of faith that I can pass on is the one I practice. And so that's why I think he says, especially for those who believe. So if you're wondering, hey, I don't know if I have this kind of persistent or this purposeful faith, then I want to ask you, well, what kind of faith do you have and what kind of faith can you pass on? What is the picture of what that will look like in your life? What do you want it to look like? If you're not sure you have this aspect of a purposeful faith, ask God, even right now, the Spirit of God, what is that picture going to look like? Because I'll tell you, my picture looks a little bit like a guy named Jim White who created a legacy without ever intending to. Jim White moved to one of California's most poorest towns called McFarland, population 13,500-ish, predominantly a Hispanic community of immigrant field workers who picked in the fields from 4 a.m. to 4 p.m., took a two-hour break, and went into the fields until dark. And they, their kids went out to the fields with them at 4 a.m. until about 7 or 8 a.m., went to school all day, then went back to the fields to pick, then had dinner and did their homework. And most of them, most of the people in that town had never completed ninth grade. And Jim sees that there's a handful of people that are pretty fast runners. And I get emotional about it because Jim saw something in them that they didn't see in themselves. And I would just say that the Spirit of Jesus sees something in you that you don't see in yourself. And he longs to call that out. And when I think about the picture of the kind of faith that I want, it's the kind of faith that I think Jim has. Because he began to talk to the principal about starting a cross-country team and getting these guys running and inviting students to work hard, run fast, and dream beyond a life of working in a field. Not that there's anything wrong with working in a field, but that that could be the end of their life. They just didn't see anything beyond that. And so many of them started reluctantly. Some of them even had to quit to work in the fields, but the team ends up running so well 
that they make to the statement. So I want you to look at this clip as we start to wrap up about this picture of a legacy, this outlasting faith that can be passed on. If you don't know Jesus, know that he says, I love you. There's nothing you have to do to earn my love. Join me in a life of adventure, in a life of faith that lasts till eternity. And if you know Jesus, then I offer this picture as one of purpose, of one that would be pleasing to God, and a one that would not just strike forth effort, but inspiration. Because these kids right here, this 1987 team, had not a single relative that completed ninth grade. All seven of these runners attended college. And it's not about education in and of itself, but it is about dreaming beyond a life just working in a field, a life for eternity and outlasting well beyond that. Five of these runners, five of these seven runners, ended up back working in this town, many of them at the school, and all of them continuing to run with the cross-country team. Talk about a legacy. And the two that don't, that don't live in the town, one serves as a police detective for uh, the state, and the other serves our country in the U.S. Army. This is a picture of outlasting devotion. Because the only kind of faith you can pass on is the kind you practice. So what kind of a faith is God inviting you to pass on? Would you pray with me? What kind of a faith, God, are you inviting us to pass on? That's the question that I think you're asking. But I thank you for this picture, not only from a movie, God, but from your word. From your word that tells us about a pleasing faith. God, that tells us about a personal faith, that tells us about a persistent faith. God, and that tells us about a purposeful faith, because we don't do these things to reach a reward in and of itself. We do these things to be closer to you, to be devoted to you, and to be able to pass that faith on to those you've called us to, to those you see, to those who will never darken the doors of a church, who might never open up the scriptures, but who desperately want to know you, Jesus. Help us to hear you right now in your name.